you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How does a music teacher for a school district create a successful software business? What is the connection between entrepreneurial thinking and grade school performance? How can farm work encourage a young man to become an entrepreneur? Listen in for the wide-ranging answers in today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. Our guest today has a broad background with a distinct entrepreneurial thread. Entrepreneurs are the reason we have iPhones, cars, planes, and most other modern conveniences. Entrepreneurs see a problem in the world and just proceed to fix it. I came across a great quote today about entrepreneurs from Nolan Bushnell. He says, the critical ingredient is getting off your butt and doing something. It's as simple as that. A lot of people have ideas, but there are few who decide to do something about them. Not tomorrow, not next week, but today. The true entrepreneur is a doer, not a dreamer. Nolan knows what he's talking about because he's done quite a few things, including starting Atari and Chuck E. Cheese's Pizza. He lives entrepreneurship, and his son, Brent Bushnell, who was on our podcast earlier this year, caught the same entrepreneurial bug. And we want to pass that same spark onto all the kids in our Inventors Boot Camp this summer. If you think about many of the tech startup companies, such as Apple, Google, Facebook, etc., they were started by passionate young entrepreneurs that caught their entrepreneurial vision early. We know how to fan those flames in our Inventors Boot Camp. We introduce teens to technologies they never knew they could learn, and then set them loose to innovate. Kevin is one of those teens. He started by learning about 3D printing, and <laughs> recently his mother told me that he's begun taking all kinds of things apart at home just to see how they work. If you want to find out more about the Inventors Boot Camp, visit ttinvent.com, that's T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T dot C-O-M, and click on the Inventors Boot Camp button there. Today, our guest, Kirk Bowman, is from the great state of Texas, and he and I discussed the effects of entrepreneurial tendencies on his life trajectory. He started his first business as a farm kid selling blackberries, and now has a software company as starting a consulting business focused on helping businesses properly price their products. Join me for a fascinating discussion about how entrepreneurial thinking can shape your world. So my guest this afternoon is Kirk Bowman. Kirk describes himself as an entrepreneur. In fact, he says he's been an entrepreneur all of his life, and he's only worked one year for someone else out of all the years since he left high school. He's been involved for about the last 20 years, is that right, Kirk, in uh, That's custom right. software development uh, with a company he created called Mighty Data. 
and he recently implemented something he calls value pricing about five years ago and he tested it in his company and he said that the first year he implemented it that he increased his revenue by 56% and then 79% the following year and so he's now offering that as a service to his customers and he's got a podcast focused on that called the art of value so Kirk tell us a little more about yourself well, first of all, uh, Steve, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to get to do this with you. I guess a little bit of background for me. I never knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just grew up with that in my blood. And what I mean by that is I grew up on a family farm. So I started working summers in seventh grade. And so every summer I would work on the farm with my dad and my grandfather. And so I saw them run their own business, but I never consciously stopped and realized, hey, they're running their own business. They are taking the risk and getting the reward. But because I was around that so early, it just became part of my nature. And so it never really dawned on me to do anything else. I'm not one of these people who work for somebody for 5, 10, 20 years and said, you know what, I'm tired of that. I want to go work for myself. Working for myself just came naturally to me because I grew up around it. So you learned that by working on a farm. Is that accurate then? Was that where the ethic came from? Or did you just work on a farm because that was what was available? Well, I worked on the farm because that was the business that my family was in. And, you know, when you're in seventh grade and somebody says, hey, I'll pay you more than minimum wage per hour, you jump at that. And so that's why it started. And basically that was the business my family was in. And so it was natural for that to be the first place to work. Plus, when you're a seventh grader, who's going to give you your first break? Well, your family. <laughs> and and it worked out. It was good work. It was fun. I mean, I was driving tractors. I was driving $100,000, $200,000 pieces of equipment. I mean, that's just fun for a kid, right? So, yeah, it was because that was the business my family was in, and it, but it did teach me a good work ethic. So you actually answered the question I was going to ask, whether they let you drive the tractors or not, or like how early you started that. But how early did you start driving the tractor? Big stuff. Oh, gosh. My guess is probably – Eighth grade would be my guess. I think I worked the first, it was either the first year or the second year, just kind of in the family shop. So my family actually had two businesses. We had a farming operation, but then we also had a farm implement manufacturing, for lack of a better way to describe it. Basically, we made certain types of equipment for other farmers to use. And so I worked in that manufacturing business probably for the first two summers, and then the third summer started driving a tractor. All right, now you've got my engineer like perked up in the back of my mind. So what kinds of stuff did you guys build in that other business? So the primary line of products were around different pieces of equipment that would apply herbicides or pesticides for crops, particularly both row crops and things like rice where you don't have rows. So it could be anything as simple as a hand sprayer or possibly like a tank with a spray apparatus that would go on an, an ATV to several different kinds of things that went on tractors. So, for example, we had something that was patented that was called a Wickmaster. There was something that it was very common, and this would have been back in the 80s, to have like a plastic PVC pipe with rope, and you'd fill the pipe with whatever you wanted to apply, herbicide, pesticide, and then you would basically flip it upside down, and as you drove over the field, the weeds or whatever would touch the wicks, and it would get the chemical on it, and then that would be the way you treat it. Well, that was actually two PVC pipes with the wicks going between them with a pump. 
So it actually was much more efficient. You'd get a lot more use out of it, and it was called a Wickmaster. Uh, we went on to build other things that probably their main product. Now it's interesting in their business that, you know, like a lot of businesses, they started with smaller products and, and develop more sophisticated things over time. So nowadays they're selling something called a Mudmaster, which is actually, it's a custom built vehicle that actually runs on hydraulics and it allows the driver to take it out in rice fields and apply herbicides and pesticides in the rice field. And so they've gone from probably making stuff that was $500 now to stuff that's $50,000. So what did you do in that business? I did a lot of the manual labor. I mean, at the time, the uh, rope master or the wick master business was where a lot of the sales were. And so I would do things like take the raw PVC pipe, drill holes in it. These holes would be threaded. Then we'd have to put fittings in it. Then we would have to put in the rope wicks, which, you know, you can basically imagine about a 12 to 18 inch length of rope that would have two caps on it and rubber grommets underneath. And basically you feed the rope ends into the fitting in the pipe and then tighten the fittings. What else? I did some painting. Didn't do a lot of fabrication like steelwork or anything like that, but it was mostly kind of just manual labor helping put those things together. That sounds awfully familiar. My dad was an orthodontist and he put me to work in the lab in the back from Actually, I think I started when I was seven. I think I remember cleaning toilets when I was when I was about seven. <laughs> we cleaned the office, we took out the trash, and then somewhere around the age of about ten, I graduated to doing lab work in the back. And so, if if your kids ever were in braces and then they had to wear a retainer when they're done, I made lots of stuff like that. Yeah, I feel very blessed that I was able to work early and learn the, the benefits that come from earning an income. And so I was never scared of that. And, you know, I, I value those experiences. They, I'm not scared of hard work. So did you work in the family business all the way through high school? I did. Up until I think my last year was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college. So after that, what were your first couple of businesses then during college and after college? So it's interesting. I didn't really start my own business. Well, no, that's not true. So I guess my first <laughs> business in college was I had a vocal group. So I went to a Christian university and I formed a vocal quartet. And so the first business was actually getting bookings for that group to go around and sing at church events and youth events and those kind of things. So that was probably the first real business that I think I had. I mean, if you want to go all the way back, the very first one was there was uh, the ditch. So I grew up in the country and the ditch out across from my house, I I can't remember, I think it was blackberries, grew in that ditch. And we would literally go pick those and then sell them on the side of the road. That was my first business. But yeah, the first one you know, after that would have been that vocal quartet. So out of curiosity, what did you go to college? What kind of degree did you go to college to get? So I've got two degrees. I've got a BA in music and then also a business, I guess a Bachelor of Business Administration in management. And kind of the story behind that is my, my dream originally was to be a musician. I'm a saxophone player, and so I wanted to just play professionally. Well, I learned that getting to that level is extremely hard. And so I wound up teaching when I got out of college. But when I was in college, basically in the fall, I would be all full of enthusiasm and passion and all that. And I, I was going to make it a musician. And by the time I got to the spring, I was discouraged and thought I might need something to fall back on. So I took the music courses in the fall and the business courses in the spring. And after five years, I had both degrees. So <laughs> I, I did not know that. And so... I assume that you are still a musician, you still play, sing, that kind of stuff? 
I do. Most of it's re- you know related around church now. I don't do any music stuff uh, for a living anymore. Did you do that for a while after college? Did you try to create a small music business or stay in that business for a little bit after you were done? I did. So my first business out of college was I taught private lessons. In fact, I probably taught between 60 and 80 students a week at the height of that business. Literally, I was going to a different school district each day of the week and teaching, you know, 10 or more students. And I did that for about five years, and then I kind of got burned out on that. But yes, that was the very first business. And I was fortunate that I went to the University of North Texas, and there are very strong band programs here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so most of the programs offer private lessons to the students that take band. In fact, in a lot of instances, you know, in order to be competitive at the top level on the top band, you need to be taking private lessons. There's that much professionalism at that level. And so that was the first thing I did for about five years. All right, so this now has my brain stirring. How did you go from teaching music lessons in the local school district to starting a software company? What were the steps in between those two things? All right, so the first thing I've got to admit is it wasn't a plan, okay? It just happened. So so first of all, I've always had an aptitude for math. I won some math awards in high school, and, and you know, of course, music, there's a correlation between music and math skills, and so... I just kind of got that aptitude. So I was teaching, you know, like I said, between 60 and 80 students a week in a different district every day of the week. And it wasn't as simple as set one rate. The district would set the rate I could charge. And some districts would want me to bill monthly. Some would want me to bill twice a month. Some of the kids were on half scholarships, some on full scholarships. So the bottom line is, and I was responsible for invoicing and, you know, collecting all the money and all that kind of stuff. So bottom line I tried to build a database system to manage this, and I started out with, like, Microsoft Works or something similar to that, and that had significant limitations. So I came across – and I'm a Mac guy, so I was always looking for a database software that will work on a Mac, and I came across something called FileMaker and actually found a book in the store and wound up building a system that would handle all the bells and whistles I needed to do the invoicing for that music business. Well, once I built that – I found a user group in town, and within about six months, I went from being the guy asking the questions to the guy answering the questions. And so that led to some freelance work, and long story short, I finally realized, hey, I could make more money at building databases than I could you know, be a musician. <laughs> <laughs> so then you developed this company over the course of the last 20 years. Did you try to keep that small and just do work by yourself, or did you try very quickly to get other people involved? How did that evolve? So for the software business, I guess early on, I tried something with a partner and I've learned partnerships don't work very well because I've tried to do them three different times. And so the first one went about six months. And then, you know, basically he and I kind of it got the business grew to a point where we kind of had differences of how we were going to go forward. And so it was obvious that the partnership wasn't going to work out. And it wasn't a true partnership at that point. We were actually kind of doing a trial thing. So we hadn't gotten into it formally where you know, we were legally partners and had to you know, divide up the business. But anyway, as the business grew, started with him and then we wound up hiring a couple of contractors. And so probably for the first five to 10 years, I probably just used contractors. It was a while before I hired my first full-time employee, but it just grew steadily over time. So if we take this same experience and we go when we back up, I want to ask you to kind of repeat that history from a different perspective now. Because most of our audience is teachers and parents who are interested in their kids getting a good education, 
go back over the same experience that you've described to me and talk to me about the things that you learned and how you learned them and what your education looked like through this whole process. Wow. I would say I learned more outside of school than I learned in school. I'm not saying I didn't learn skill applicable, but I probably learned is, you know, specifically to the business side of it, I learned more outside school doing the business than I learned inside school for the business. So I know you said your audience is teachers, and that may not be the necessarily <laughs> the thing that they want to hear, but I'll just be honest. It's my perspective. I think one of the things missing from schools nowadays is this whole entrepreneurial spirit. This idea of taking risk to gain reward, it's just not taught very much. I mean, you might find a college here or there that has an entrepreneurial program, but I'm not aware of any high school that has you know, an entrepreneur class, right? And I think that's missing. I think it's needed. So, you know, I use things like the math. I mean, the music taught me how to perform and I'm comfortable speaking and those kind of things. But I had to, there, you know, there was a, a gap between what I learned in school and everything I needed in order to be successful in the business world. And as you started working with FileMaker, I assumed that you picked up books and other things. So did you find after you left high school that you spent a lot of time reading books, going to conferences, things like that? Yes, yes, I continued my education. You know, there's a funny story here. So I did FileMaker for a while, and I thought, and I'm not a programmer by trade, okay? I'm, it's not like I have a CS degree, a computer science degree, but I had the math aptitude. And so I actually tried taking a, going back and taking kind of a college course, but it was kind of a, I guess, kind of like a vocational course in C++ programming. And after the first night, I didn't go back. I just said, no way, Jose. But yes, I have continued to do things to improve my education. So yes, I try to go to about four conferences a year at the time learning FileMaker. I read the book. I then found out that the author who wrote the book taught training classes. So I took both the training classes he taught. One was here in Dallas. The other was in Boston. So I actually not only paid for the class, but the travel up there it was about a week-long class. So I invested in that. I sought out industry groups. So like with FileMaker, there was a, a group for consultants. I joined that as quickly as I could, got to know other people, did networking, read books. And I didn't just read books on technical. You know, I read books about marketing. I read books about, you know, having sales conversations. I read books about the legal side of the business and so forth. So yeah, definitely had to continue my education. I, I guess now that I think about it, what did school do? It taught me how to learn and it taught me not to be scared to research things. So with that in mind then, compare a kind of a typical class experience going through from a college class, the professor lecturing, you know, reading the, the assignments, you know, doing the assignments. Compare that learning experience to the learning experience of getting a book and doing something in your business. Like, How are those two things related and how are they different? Wow. So when you mentioned that, the first college class that comes to my mind is my uh, my college marketing class. It was a complete waste. Literally, I showed up and the professor just <laughs> taught out of the book. And, and all you had to do, I mean, literally, if you just read the chapter one time, you could show up, fill in the blank on the tests. I mean, the only reason I showed up to class is because he took attendance. And if I didn't show up for attendance, then I wouldn't get to pass the class. But literally, I mean, it was just a total waste. Not every class in college was, but that's kind of the extreme. Contrast that with reading a book. With reading a book, it's all on me. First, you have to read the book. I interviewed a, a book publishing company recently on my show, and you know, he said something like, "Only I don't know most 
books, and I can't remember the exact percentages, but let's just say 70% of all books, people only make it through the first three chapters, something like that. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and they can track this on Amazon now because people are buying more ebooks. Of course, like with the Kindle, they track how far you read. So they've got these statistics. So first of all, the challenge with a book is to finish reading it. And then the challenge is, okay, you put the time in, you've invested of yourself to read it. Now, how are you going to apply it? Are you highlighting things? Are you making notes? Do you challenge yourself to go, okay, I just read this book. What are the top three or five or whatever things I'm going to apply from that book? And when are you going to do it? And how are you going to do it? Are you reading books on things that motivate you? I, I think you never stop learning. Entrepreneurs never do. And every entrepreneur I know loves to learn, loves to learn. I guess that's one of the qualities of an entrepreneur is you're not scared to say, I don't know, and, and go find it. In fact, you know, figuring out things you don't know is part of being an entrepreneur. I would completely agree with that. I mean, my classical training is in science and math, and business is not second nature to me. I've had to work very hard to get the little bit of knowledge that I have, and I mean, there's just so much involved in a business and understanding your customer and understanding how to speak to your customer and how to market yourself and sell yourself, you know, how to arrange a suite of products so that the customer picks the one that's best for them. And, you know, then after that, if you grow, you have to worry about teams and team management. And, oh, my goodness, there's a, just a tremendous amount of knowledge out there that I just don't know. And, and I didn't have a business degree. I had to actually go back and get books. And I don't know why I decided books were a better option for me than going back to college. I think maybe after having a Ph.D., you just get tired of going to school. I, I just wanted to read a book instead. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I'm an entrepreneur. You notice I didn't say I'm an entrepreneur because I went to college and got a business degree. I said I'm an entrepreneur because I grew up in a family that was entrepreneurial. That's where I got the skills. I can't point to college and say I got a business degree. That's why I'm in business because so much of what I studied in college was for corporate business, <sighs> you know, <laughs> has no application to what I'm doing now. I went to college because that's what was expected. Right. And I enjoyed it and I learned. I mean, college was a chance for me to I mean, I, I spent all my time doing my music stuff. The business was just that backup thing. I mean, it never even went through my head. Hey, you're taking business courses. You might own a business one day. Never went through my head. So that begs a different kind of question. How many of the people that you kind of kept in contact with after college and over the years actually went from having a business degree to starting a business? Now, not working in a business, but starting a business. Wow. I would say the majority of people that I went to school with work for somebody else rather than own their own business. But that's changing. I mean, as a country, you know, I'm trying to remember what was I can I'll have to look up the book here. But anyway, Dan Pink wrote a book. I think it was called Freelance Nation, but basically talking about, you know, there's this trend in America where people are leaving corporate jobs. They'd rather have a one man business and, and call their own shots. They're willing to take the risk. And so when you're asking me that college was 20 years ago, it's different now. But then I would say the majority of the people don't own their own business. I think it's going to be much higher now. So how valuable do you think that entrepreneurial bug or impulse is for students graduating in 2015? I think it's critical. Whether you're going to work for somebody else or work for yourself, I don't want a company of employees. I want a company of entrepreneurs. I want everybody who works for me to think that essentially they're running their own little business, their own little department within the bigger business, right? I want people to not just show up and get a paycheck. I want people who are passionate about what we do, people who want to take risks, people who will come to me and say, hey, I want to try this. 
that's what I want. I think entrepreneurial spirit is critical, whether you're going to work for yourself or somebody else. Even if you're working for somebody else, who are the people that are going to be successful and have additional opportunities? The ones who have an entrepreneurial spirit. So we've been dancing around this a little bit and kind of weaving in and out with the topics of school and learning. And as you look at the educational backdrop out there, thinking about how much we talk about entrepreneurship, if you could wave a magic wand over the school system, what kinds of things would you change or improve or keep the same? Wow. You really want me to answer that question? (laughs) I want the honest answer, Kirk. Give me the lowdown. (laughs) I think the schools that are more successful are the private schools. And I think we need to implement more of the characteristics of private schools in public schools. I think, number one, we need to pay teachers more. Number two, pay needs to be based on performance, but performance can't be measured by standardized tests. I think we need to stop having academics dictate what's get taught. We need to have people – we need to have a board of business people who determine what gets taught. I love teachers. They care more about what they do than anything else, and, and basically I want to get rid of the bureaucracy and a broken system so they can succeed. I don't think the teachers we have in general are the issue. It's the system the teachers are in. You just opened a whole can of worms. <laughs> I asked you if you wanted me to answer that question. I mean – I gave you it out. Um, because you said in the same sentence, you said that pay should be performance-driven, but that shouldn't be based on standardized testing. That's a mouthful right there. So unpack that just a little. <laughs> well, you know, I'm in Texas, and here the, the standardized testing is called the STARS test. I see the agony my kids go through worrying about whether they're going to pass the test. And what's happened here is that, you know, basically they just finished the STARS test about the time we're recording this. Pretty much there's a different tone for the last few weeks of school. It's like everybody's breathing a sigh of relief. We've made it past the STARS test. I don't want to say we're going to coast, but there's a relaxation that's not there the rest of the year. I think that's a problem because the goal is not helping the students from a system level, it's how good can we score on these tests? And if we don't score good on these tests, that's going to affect our funding. It's going to reflect on promotions and so on and so forth. It's, it's, I'm sorry, the emphasis is not on educating the kids. It's on getting the best grades on the tests. I think standardized testing is a problem. It's become the goal. Good grades on a test is not the goal. All right, I'm, you hooked me. <laughs> what is the relationship between these issues that you brought up and leadership? Oh, my goodness. You just want to keep going down the rabbit hole, don't you? Um, I do. (laughs) Well, I think, again, I keep criticizing the system. And, and, you know, a part of my concern with public education is that it's run by the local government. Government does not know how to run a program for profit. They just don't. Okay, government programs are created to maintain or increase the status quo in general. And so I think. Number one, we've got some great leaders in the schools, some of the principals and stuff, but again, it's the system they're in. But I'd love to see it, you know, have more of an entrepreneurial spirit. Give the individual principals more opportunities to try different things. Give them the opportunity to take risk and get rewarded. So I think we need entrepreneurial leaders in the schools, but we've got to change the system so they're allowed to do that. That's a big job. And I don't know that you and I are necessarily going to solve that. But thank you for the perspective, and thank you for the insight on that. As we're wrapping up here, we've got two questions we always like to ask, and you are uniquely positioned to answer the first one. In the digital age, I mean, we have access to 
Facebook, we have access to Wikipedia and YouTube, and we can go out and we can type terms into a search engine and look across over a half a billion websites for information. With that much information out there, what does it mean to be, quote, educated? Well, there's a difference between education and information. Okay, just because you have a ton of information available doesn't mean, A, you're going to use it, or B, you know how to use it. And I think that's one of the things that schools do help with quite a bit because, you know, you, you need to write a research paper on George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. You have to learn how to do research. You have to learn how to compile a lot of information from a lot of different sources and summarize it down. You have to learn how to pick out the parts that are important to you. So I think what it means to live in an age where we have Google and Wikipedia is simply the idea that you've got the best tools available. Do you know how to use them and will you use them? That's a new one. Will you use them? I hadn't thought about that, but I guess there are a lot of people that don't necessarily use them, even though some of the greatest, most powerful digital resources are available at our fingertips. I guess there probably are still people out there that don't. There will be people who ask me a question sometimes, and it wouldn't do this with a customer necessarily, but with a team member or possibly a friend, one of the first questions is, well, did you Google it? <laughs> Last night, I'm currently evaluating a couple of different of handheld recorders, and they're both made by the same company. What did I do? I typed in Model A versus Model B in my browser, brought up the first 30 hits and scanned them, You know, got rid of the ones that were videos because I didn't want to watch videos, got rid of the ones that were forums because I don't know who those people are. I was looking for good, long interviews. Out of those 30, I probably found five or six that I skimmed, found the information I want. Well, that's a very powerful tool that you and I didn't have at our fingertips necessarily coming through college. It was right at the tipping point there. I remember Google was starting to become a big deal when I was in graduate school, so right at the point where I was graduating from college. And now we have just a plethora of information out there. So taking the time, if you will take the time to, and you mentioned a couple of very powerful ideas in that. You didn't say the word sifting necessarily, but having a good detector of good information versus bad information, or of condensed information versus rambling long information as well. And you were able to very quickly get down to something you were looking for. So with that perspective now, I want to ask you the last question we're going to land with here. And it's more of a philosophical question. So put on your, your philosophical hat here for a moment. What is the purpose of an education? I think the purpose of an education is to teach you how to learn teach you how to research, teach you how to problem solve, to teach you to learn how to fish instead of somebody just giving you a fish. I think that's the purpose of education. So many students go to college and they switch majors a half dozen times. I don't even think the purpose of a college education, in, and unless, you know, there are some fields like medical, legal, those kind of things where, yeah, you've got to get on the track because there's a long process to graduate. But in general, how many people go to college and are now working in the field where they had a major? I would say I'm not. And I think college is just just taking your educational level up a step. It proves you can accomplish something. It proves you can keep your nose to the grindstone for four years and do something that's hard, right? That's the purpose of an education. The purpose of an education is weeding out. So if I could summarize that, overall, reading books or going to school, either way, the purpose of an education is – for us to learn how to learn. But the formalized education system, at least a part of it, is to kind of weed out people who maybe don't want to learn. Is that accurate? You have to learn how to learn. 
I don't think any a few people are probably born with it, but most people aren't. I think it's a skill you have you have to learn how to learn. You have to learn how to search for information, how to process information, how to disseminate information, how to make decisions based on information. You have to learn those things. I think that's the value of an education, of a formal education. So when you say education, I think of high school and college. I differentiate that from now that I'm out of school, now my education is what I choose to learn. It's the books I choose to read and how I apply it. I consider that different because when I'm buying a book or reading a book, it's because I want to do it. It's because it's something I know I want to learn about, I need to improve in, et cetera. That to me is different. It, when you're in a formal education, you're, I mean, obviously in college you choose a major, but still you're following the leadership of the teacher. Once you're out, you are your own teacher. So I, I see those two things as separate. So I think formal educations teach you how to learn so that then when you become responsible for your learning, you can do it well. I like how you put that. I think we're just going to wrap it right there. We couldn't end any better than that. Thank you so much, Kirk, for taking a few minutes to talk to our audience. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Well, probably the best place to find me is online. Our website is artofvalue.com. We have a podcast with 40-plus episodes out there all on the business model of value pricing, so you can check those out for free. You can also find me on Twitter, at Art of Value. love for people to reach out and connect with us. Thank you, Kirk. I appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Take care. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com podcast. Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students?